Hello and welcome to the Great Rift podcast. I'm David. I'm Jamie. Hi Jamie, how are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you? Long time no no podcasting really for a while. We've been a little bit quiet, haven't we? But um, yeah, uh, life life and moving moving very fast with new new life things. So it's nice it's nice to have some hobby time set aside. Yes, yeah, definitely. Yeah, absolutely. So for uh, listeners that haven't uh, read the title of the episode today, um, we've got a special guest. Uh, we've got Chris Wright on the call. How are you, Chris? Uh, very good, thanks. Uh, how are you? Yes, not bad at all. Really looking forward to chatting to you. Thank you for making the time. The first question is, Chris, to people who are listening to this who haven't, who don't know who you are, I guess if you want to just describe, you know, what you what you've done in in the past, um, what you're working on, and what you worked on in the past to to our audience, if if they crazily have not heard of you before. <laughs> sure. No, well, I, I've written uh, quite a lot of books for Black Library over the years, and I, I started out writing for the Warhammer Fantasy Battle uh, novels uh, that um, when that sort of setting was 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 active and for Black Library, and then moved into writing for 40k, wrote a space wolf book called Battle of the Fang, uh, which got me started with that. Uh, and then uh, as time went on, I eventually got asked to do uh, a couple of heresy books. And that really, for me, was uh, dealing with the Fifth Legion, the, the White Scars. So I wrote a novel called Scars, which really introduced the Legion. Uh, a novella called Brotherhood of the Storm, which was uh, um, actually that, that came out before the novel, but that really sort of set the scene for, for all the stories that followed. And then uh, The Path of Heaven, which was the second novel uh, following them. And I've just written uh, the third book, which is how I think of it. It's called Warhawk, which is the part of the Siege of Terror mm-hmm. uh, series, which kind of finishes off the heresy, or at least brings us uh, right to the end of that, that sort of period of history. And I've done a few other things with the heresy as well. I've written um, uh, a novella uh, called Wolf King, which is about Space Wolves, and I've written quite a lot of Space Wolves in 40k as well. So sort of uh, bits and pieces all over the place, uh, but mostly white scales when it comes to the heresy. Oh, wicked. It definitely feels like, I, 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 I do notice this, obviously, um, writers, you will write what, what you, you, you need to write for, but I definitely feel like you've got your flavour of, of the, the sort of books you seem to write for that library. This feels like a lot of, like you say, Space Wolves across both Heresy and 40k. But I always think of you when I think of White Scars and also Death Guard. I think of you when I think of Death Guard, like they're the pinnacle in my mind. Do you think that's a thing that happens to writers at Black Library or is it just pure chance that you seem to get those books? Yeah, so I'm a bit um, a bit alarmed that you think of me when you think of the Death Guard. That's um, <laughs> that's going to haunt me, I think. <laughs> I, I love Death Guard Army, so take it as a compliment, Chris. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, the way it generally happens, I guess, with the library, certainly there's a bit of to and fro, but essentially, in all those cases, the editors came to me and said, um, we would like a, a White Scars novel or a Death Guard novel or a Space Wolf novel. Is that something you'd be interested in? So um, it, it often comes down to something as simple as what, um, the editors are interested in doing at the time. So certainly that's true with Death Guard. I've written a book called Lords of Silence in 40k, which is set yeah. in, in sort of the present of 40k, as well as quite a lot in the heresy, mostly in the White Scars books, They're the antagonists in most of the White Scars stories. Yeah. Um, and it's really, I mean, I'd like to say there's some, you know, really clever master plan where we all think very hard about <laughs> it, but it, it, most of the time it, it's what there's a slot in the, in the in the schedule or it's something that seems right it fits with other things that are going on um and generally speaking we all write about um all the factions and there's, there's certainly no red list but but certain authors do get associated with mm-hmm. different factions and characters and so you tend just out of courtesy to kind of uh carve out a little bit of the silo and then if you're doing quite a lot of that um then that's just the way it develops so it's mostly random i'd say yeah. but um but, but once you get into something, the experience I've had of writing for that library is even if, um, I mean, for example, I wasn't wildly into the Death Guard before I wrote Boards of Science. I found them interesting and I really, um, I loved a lot of the other Death Guard fiction I read, but I didn't feel I understood them mm-hmm. until I was actually forced to come up with a pitch for the book and really think hard about how I felt that they worked and what their, their motivations were and all those kind of things. And so a lot of my experience of writing for BL is that until you have to start telling stories, uh, you don't always that that's the point at which you start to really kind of understand the faction and it's a really fascinating process kind of learning by doing yeah no that, that, that's definitely what our, I think Jamie I put words in your mouth but definitely feels like that's what our podcast is about is understanding not only what you've written but the the process you go on to get there and how you you know mm. dis- 
dissect a legion for example and build it up and play it back because like you i actually never had a huge affinity with the death guard and then something happened during the garrow book um back, mm-hmm. what 15 years ago and mm-hmm. i'm actually doing a death guard um uh legion for the heresy game uh and then about i'd say four or five years ago whenever the um your death guard book came out um the lords of silence was around the time that i had an awful lot of the death guard release models for mm-hmm. 40 days. so you absolutely flipped the my my picture <laughs> my head i always thought they were just like zombified no personality or, autonomous morons well, it's not a million miles away is it <laughs> <laughs> It's kind of similar to that um, uh, Aaron Dembski Bowden with the Night Lords. I, I got sympathetic there. Yeah, I guess I, it's more interesting, I find. Anyway, yeah, I definitely didn't go into that book thinking uh, I'm going to come out of this and end up spending years doing thousands of points worth of army. Yeah, I, I think um, I, I think a lot of people feel like that, and I think it's it's surprising what you get into and, and what really catches your imagination and what you run with. I think it's 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 incredibly privileged position as a writer to be given the chance to to run with something like that and think well, what would be my take on this legion i mean the laws of science was interesting because it was um it was being written when the death guard were really becoming they were almost being rebooted for 40k there were lots of yeah. insurances that the, the whole sort of dark imperium series which was when the, the sort of 40k as we know was really being mm-hmm. established the death guard was a big part of that and guy haley wrote uh, a, a, now a trilogy which really heavily features them yes and yeah. they've been in quite a lot of other fiction as well and so the the challenge in that situation is, well, what what can you do to make it a little bit different, to make it so it's not just repeating stuff that other authors are doing, um, and uh, so we're not just telling the same stories. And so a lot of us, we do talk to each other quite a lot, and we do think quite hard about you know how these things would, would fit together. And, and so one of the themes of the Lords of Science was this was a, a war band of the Legion that really, for a number of reasons, just doesn't get involved in the big things that are going on with mm-hmm. the rest of the at the same time. It was an opportunity to look at a slightly splintered group, um, so they weren't necessarily thinking the same things as some of that. Because the whole shit with chaos is, it's very hard to get a unified sense of, of, of what any faction in chaos is, is like. And they're all at each other's throats all the time. They all have different views about just the nature of, of, of what they are. Um, so it was a really nice thing just to, to be able to take a little bit of that legion, that sprawling legion of thousands and thousands of warriors, just have a single warband that, that was doing its own thing. That was a Kind of almost lost in the galaxy it was almost like a marooned mm-hmm. dark imperium so it wasn't part of the the stuff that guided so brilliantly in, in uh the, the other side of the galaxy going over to um ultramar uh, so that was nice you get, get a little bit of freedom and i think uh, i mean I'm, I, I'm a great believer in that it's good when different authors and different um people writing uh, background fiction have a slightly different take um yeah i completely agree in a way i think that, that's all to the good it makes the setting richer um, and it's, it's not a problem when things have come out slightly differently. And so it's nice when you read different take on something like that. Yeah, I, I agree. And uh, I think, um, going back to my point on feeling sympathy for the characters and actually understanding why they do what they do. And we've had uh, examples of that with with the Night Lords books from uh, Aaron Dembski Bowden. There's this, what I like is when, when you get to do what you do, you take them away from being these like moustache twirling, you know, <laughs> you know, that just chuckle whenever they do something. And you've turned them into like, Oh yeah, do you know what? I think I, they're right to go and set that. Yeah, line. yeah. I totally agree why they're doing it. <laughs> I think also yeah, David. Saying... I mean, it's funny you, you hear that um, expressed quite a lot. I, I've I've got a secret desire to write a chaos faction that literally have moustaches at page twelve, <laughs> but, but we can really lead into that and uh, make that their thing. But no, no. I mean, it's, I mean, I think Night Lords, the, the Aaron's um, Night Lord trilogy, opened a lot of people's eyes, myself included, to what um, can be done with chaos. And I think there've been some very good chaos books before and after by other people as well but I think the, you're getting into trying to see the world through that um, very difficult perspective so what can I mean the, the Death Guard again is a good example of this I mean my the first question I had was how on earth do you what do they want you know what 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 yeah. do these people want I mean mm-hmm. if you sometimes they you know you can paint a baddie as just going around doing horrible things but if, you, if they're the, the subject of the story it'd be really boring if they had no mot- no reason for doing mm-hmm. it they had no goals and no things that they wanted to get that could be made interesting so just thinking about how what, what a death guard warband commander might conceivably want in in modern 40k what their their ambitions are and how they go about getting it um and so that when the readers hopefully reading it they're thinking 
it's not as if you sympathize with them, but you at least identify and think, well, yeah. I could see why someone might think that if they're in their position. Yeah, uh, sure. So you're just working really hard to make the world they inhabit it rich and believable and coherent. Um, and I suppose that, that pro- well, I don't know, I mean, so, so occasionally people say, is that harder with chaos? But I don't think it is really, because the Imperium is just as horrible. It's just as dysfunctional. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think if the Imperium is written right, it should never come across as familiar. It should, so everything in 40K is very odd. So even yeah. the ostensible heroes, they're living in a world that is really horrific and they've got values that I think are really horrific. And so you're doing this with pretty much every 40K story. You're trying to tell a story about people that are very far removed from our situation and, yeah, and get people sucked into that world in the way that makes sense to them. Yeah, it's true. I, th- I think Dave is also saying that you've cost them a lot of money in models or Death Guard. But, um... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> fine. I had a question jotted down for you around so you've written you've written Death Guard from a 40k perspective and obviously you've touched on it quite a lot in the heresy. What especially given the fact that we're in the siege of terror now and people are starting to not only fall into damnation but actually look it as well. You know, like Mortarians landed on terror mm-hmm. looking significantly different to how he did when he left to go there. Mm-hmm. Uh, what how, do you think that they're pretty much there when they're on terror without giving too much away with your new book coming out? Or do you think there's still a long way to go in that 10,000 year gap in terms of their behavior, um, how they are? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think I think um, that there is quite a lot in Warhawk about um, how the Death Guard feel about their transformation. Um, and I think I thought, felt that was really important because obviously the, the actual description of uh, the Death Guard for the Doom of the Death Guard takes place. It's literally the final book of the Heresy series. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we get, we're into the Siege of Terror. So unlike a lot of traitor legions, they have their, their, their transformation is a funny one because it's sort that they they dabbled in, in chaos and the demonic all the way through the books. Um, mm-hmm. But they have their actual like official collapse into chaos right at the end, just before they arrive at the siege. And it's so like it's, kind of instantaneous across the legion in a yeah. way. Which is very yeah, no, that's right. I mean, they, they all go into the warp and they all come out and they're all changed. I think that um so really the the that's their theme in in the book i just written um that mm-hmm. they they sort of they almost like land on the planet and they're looking at each other and going wow look at we, we're not we're, this isn't the way we enter the war we've come out <laughs> i can see your gut yeah <laughs> <laughs> um so it's a big thing i mean, i think um but yeah the world eaters the, the word there is they, they've all basically turned up on terror almost as you we see them in 40k they've had seven years of getting used to their change uh, whereas the, the death card don't and so to answer your question i mean i suppose i they, they probably are more or less physically as they are in 40k in the siege they are plague, they're plague marines i mean i think i think there is a bit in warhawk where someone calls the plague marines for the first time or at least it's, it's yeah, one of the imperial characters notes that plagues is now what people are calling them yeah um, but mentally i don't think they are i think mentally they're still they're almost at the beginning of that journey and so their 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 bodies have changed but i'm not sure their minds have caught up with it yet. and and then they, they've now got these extended lifetimes in the war to, to get used to that so when you see a character like vox in, in the lords of silence he is complete a complete plague man he's completely drenched in in the blessings or the curses of Nurgle and he knows who he is. All the yeah. Death Guard characters in in the Siege of Terror, I think they're still very unsure of who they are. They, they've got gifts and they don't really know how to use them yet. Um, but I think you know, all, all the things we associate with Plague Marines, like they're incredible resilience. If you, you, you can shoot them in the arm and the bullet will just kind of enter the flesh and dissolve. And those kind of things are all new to them. They're still learning how to fight. Um, so that they're a mix of the old Death Guard Legion with all its strengths and weaknesses and what become the, the Death Guard um, the 40k Legion. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I quite like it. It makes me even more excited to read it, to be honest. <laughs> very, very nice. I like, I like that idea of the physically they're there, but mentally they're not, because that feels quite different to the change of other legions where yeah, men, the word men, bearers definitely i feel like the word bearers from my perspective they were already there waiting to change this and then obviously argo tower when he goes through the warp he gets the physical change but yeah they, they were mentally very ready for it i think yeah that's a really nice really nice difference okay so you said you've also done some space walls um in mm. as well how do you find how do you find writing those legions that are very 
Well, well you, they could go very, you know, they've got a very strong personality, especially in that outward look, yeah. but also how they behave, but not to go too far, maybe a bit too comical with them. How do you, how do you find walking that line, line with those legions? That, that, that's another great question. I mean, because it's something that I think has been really hard and challenging. I, I started writing 40K with the Space Wolves. They're, they're the, the chapter that, that I was given the opportunity to write when I was really learning about 40K. I'd read quite a lot, but you know, it's a very different thing trying to write it. It's amazing how easy it is to get it completely wrong. Mm-hmm. And so I, I wrote a book about the Fang, which is a Space Moon Battle book, which is kind of a standalone. Uh, story and then I wrote what's become a trilogy of Space Wolf books. Um, so Blood of Azaheim was the first in that trilogy and then there was one called Stormcaller and there's just been a release called The Hellwinter Gate. And for me at any rate that is quite interesting because when I started writing that trilogy it was a long time ago it's been a big gap between the books. Um, I, I you know I made so many mistakes with that I got so many things wrong so, some like real like factual mistakes I got something wrong about the chapter and some the kind of thing I guess you're getting at, the kind of tonal mistakes that you can make when you're writing. Mm-hmm. You know, trying to really get it right. And again, I mean, I always talk about books like Hell's Reach as, as books that I felt really did get it right. And trying to kind of match that um, is it, surprisingly hard. It's, you, you're sort of teetering all the time on going a little bit too far. As you said, you could be a bit comical with Space Wolves. You could make them a little bit kind of um, kind of drunk and brawling space fighting. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with that, but, but you know, but also you can go the other way and you can end up taking away all their character entirely and make them very yeah. boring, just um, kind of ordinary space being. And that, I, 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 you know, I'm still struggling with it. I think every writer of um, in Warhammer, that's one of the big challenges of trying to get that tone right, the spirit right. Um, and looking back, you know, you think when you're writing sort of long running series, you you do try and develop and, and kind of um yeah kind of have your own voice but make sure it's consistent with the background so you're not kind of reinventing anything and i think hopefully i've got a bit better at that. And, and certainly it's, it's interesting writing a book like the hell Winter gate which was the third of the, the trilogy where i didn't want to depart too far from the decisions i'd made in the, the first one because it's it, it's a, a set of books that ought to be a little bit unified but on the other hand you do hope that you develop as an author and so a few things would have changed a bit just in terms of of tone i mean the space wars are like the Death Guard is, is is a chapter that I think I learned about by doing and didn't okay. feel like I had a great handle on them when I started. Yeah. And hopefully you feel like I've got a better handle now. Mm. Um, they're also a chapter that has been written up by a lot of people and they've, they've all yeah. had different perspectives. And so the way that Bill King wrote about them in the original Space Trilogy is very different to the way that Dan Abner wrote about them in the Heresy. Very different to the way that some other writers have written, uh, like Gav Thorpe and other sort of BL writers have written Space Wars recently. So it's Again, it's the going back to that thing about lots of different perspectives for me is a good thing. And uh, occasionally you, you get sort of readers thinking, well, you know, why, 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 is it, why isn't it all completely uniform? Well, I think it would be very hard to do that even if you wanted to. But I'm quite keen on, the, on, on it not being the case. So if you don't like, for example, MySpace walls, you could always go back to Bill's or Gab's or, or Dan's and find something that you enjoy that reflects the way you think it ought to be. And that, that strikes me as a good thing. Oh yeah, no, no, yeah, it's definitely as you, yeah, it's a nice, nice to have variety, and also because these legions nowadays they're not all going to be as uniform characters anyway. They're, I mean, especially space wolves, they're quite they're strong personalities in there. That they probably are going to be very different characters even in in the one legion. So um, yeah, yeah, that variety is is great. Yeah, did you find it hard to write as sort of on the same line about 40k marines compared to 30k marines? Because we had Graham on, and he definitely said that he had to really think about how how those marines are different and that the <laughs> yeah. marines are very uniform compared to yeah. the 30k marines which have a lot more personality yeah i think he said 40k marines declare everything because they're doing it yeah i mean I, I, he might be talking about ultra marines was he i mean it was at these his, his uh, yeah <laughs> yeah so i can really see that with ultra marines i think they, they they're always like the best possible example you can think of of a um, a real difference between their 30k and 40k cells. Um, I mean, maybe Space Wolves, I mean, they, they obviously have changed in lots of ways. They might have changed a bit less, I suppose, because they haven't, they, as you said, they've got that kind of slightly more flair and slightly more individuality. But but definitely, I think, um, I hope that, that when people see things like dialogue in a 30k book and a 40k book, that they can see that they're different institutions mm-hmm. and they've changed this you know, 10,000, insane 10,000 years of history that they ought to be really different. They are. It's one of the reasons why I'm not keen to write any 40k white scars because I think 
it'd be really good. There have been some great uh, 40k wise cards novels, but I think as they, as more come on in the pipeline, it'd be great for other voices to to really take them in a new direction and okay, yeah. make it very clear that they're not the kind of um, legion that we've seen in the heresy books. They really ought to be different, and they ought to be you know, they might in quite profound ways. You, know, you lose your primarch, you have 10,000 years of evolution, the entire Imperium crumbles around you. You're going to be different. You might have different. Even on uh, the values. even at an infrastructural level, you know, they 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 followed the Codex Astartes, whereas maybe the Space Wolves didn't. Yeah. So even at a level where in, in some of your books where you've got armies of jet bikes, you know, that just doesn't happen in 40k because you've got to follow a book right. that tells you to have X amount of marines and X amount of transports. And that would change them significantly in 10,000 years because they'd have a completely new doctrine of fighting, you'd imagine. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I think it's really cool when you see those things and you see the little vestiges of the past, maybe. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I love the whole thing about in, the, in everything that's written in Portico, I love the idea that this is a cult that's basically forgotten itself. And so some of the things, they might use the, some of the same words that they used in the heresy period, but they don't really know what they mean. They certainly don't mean the same thing that they did then. Uh, so even even the sort of the, the symbols and the badges that they have, they're either empty, they don't have any meaning at all, or they mean something different. And I love seeing that in, in Portico fiction, the idea that this is an Imperium that's essentially just lost its soul um, and is just rehearsing uh, the, the, the things that it used to do with reason, mm-hmm. but now it does balance habit because it's, it's degenerate at the end of its life. Um, and so I think it's really cool when you see some of those things from the heresy period that are just kind of lingering, but they don't have the same um, significance anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It's, 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 it's uh, decay upon decay, isn't it? It's 10,000 years. It's going to be such, all the meaning will be lost for most things. Yeah. Um, pretty bonkers. Yeah, I mean, that's, it's what I love about the setting. I think it's, it's a unique setting. Um, we're talking about 40k now, really. I mean, the way I see the heresy stories, the heresy stories are interesting because they show you how 40k happened. And, mm, yeah, and, yeah, and in a weird way, sort of 40, 40k is what comes first, in the sense that conceptually, the heresy is there to explain how, how 40k happens. <laughs> and I don't know of any settings that are as good at this, they're just sort of showing you a completely nightmarish future where nobody, there are no institutions that are good. There are no institutions no. that make any sense at all. The only thing you can do is have individuals within those institutions that are sympathetic and you get behind. But you know, they're not nobody. It's like it's like a horror setting more than a science fiction. Sometimes I think yeah, it's just people like stuck in this nightmare, and you're almost following people in the way that you follow people in a horror movie. You're, you're not expecting them to win. You're just wondering, are they going to get out? And of course, in the Portuguese, you know, they're not going to get out. <laughs> yeah, so, they're it's just doing the best they can in this horrible, horrible future. Yeah, I find it very Lovecraftian. I find it very doom and gloom, cosmic terror all the time, um, which yeah. I think it's supposed to be. You know, it should be. I, I think it is. I mean, I think you, you, you do need light and shade. You, you need some humour. You need to have sympathetic characters that you care about and want to succeed. I mean, there, there are ways of winning in 40k, but I just think they're very different to the ways of winning in the real world. Like, you know, a character in 40k that has a good death, for example, that that is true to their, to, to their <laughs> yeah that's about as good as you get in 40k you don't get yeah. characters who win by achieving some noble goal i mean <laughs> there just aren't any left <laughs> yeah um so i was going to jump into staying in the 40k world for a little bit um i'm a really big fan of your watchers of the thrones series um, yeah definitely the 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 first one was the emperor's legion that that's um, right. That really knocked me for six, actually. So stepping into the world of Valerian was pretty cool, actually. But that that book for me did a hell of a lot of heavy lifting because you kind of had to tell the story from a different perspective of the Great Rift opening and yeah. what that looks like and the build up of it. When we were talking about uh, you know writing Space Marines being different to uh, Heresy Space Marines, was it like writing a custodian? Because yeah, to me, yeah. they are related, but they're not the same. And I, so, how do you go about writing for them uh, and making that understandable to an audience? Yeah, it's tricky. I mean, it, it was it was a really challenging project because, as you said, the it did a lot of heavy lifting. And I think that when I was writing the novel, I, some of the background books that were really charting the Great Rift were being written at the same time. So I was getting material from Games Workshop as I was writing the book. Um, and so a lot of things had to be just written in parallel. And, and so I was I was learning about the changes to the universe as we were 
I mean, not, not all the shows, obviously some of it had come out. So it was a, a bit of a moving target. And the other thing was the custodians, the, the pitch was to write a custodian's book. But up until then, the whole point of the custodian thing, they never, they never left Terra, they never got out. No one knew about them. The yeah. bodyguards, the emperor, they never left the palace. There was this mysterious order. And um, so what do you do with that? I mean, you, you know, it, it, so um, I, I struggled a lot with how I, what kind of story I'd tell and mm-hmm. you know, how to make it interesting. Because I didn't want to do just a story that could have been a space marine story. Because I think, it's, you know, you, if, if the custodians are anything, then as you said yourself, they're not in, they're not space marines. They are something else. They, they have certain similarities. They're superhumans, they're, they're, they're yeah. special warriors, but they're not space marines. Um, and so a little bit like with, with Scars, actually, and what I sort of landed on was, I'll tell the story of how the custodians stopped being the thing we thought they were and, yeah. and they now are. So tell the story about how within the universe their role changed from the traditional yeah. thing past to the to, to being out in the universe doing stuff. And so Valerian is one of the key sort of movers of that. And I didn't want it just to be about an action story. So I thought this is actually you know, the way the Imperium is, it's like a legal organisation. It's this crushing bureaucracy. It's got laws, it's got regulations, it's got traditions, it's got superstitions. And so that's the kind of thing which would take it decades to, to work out. Really. You know, they, they'd have endless meetings about it. You know, and, and they'd have, you know, kind of, um, you know, people would be burnt alive for suggesting things. Then 2000 years later, someone else would suggest it may be burnt alive. And finally, it would get to the sort of committee stage. So the... the the stick with the book was, look, let's make this a political novel as much as it's yeah. about fighting. We'll, we'll show what was going on on Terra when the Great Rift opened, that maybe all the events that kind of kicked the custodians into the limelight and made them the force that they are now. And through that, the hope was that we'd see that they are different to Space Marines. And I mean, for anyone who hasn't read the book, it's told in the first person and there are three characters and they've all got first-person perspective. One of them is a custodian called Valeria, one's a sister of silence called Alea, and there's a, an imperial politician called Tyron. And they all have their perspective on what's going on, and all of them are incomplete. And, and even the custodian doesn't know everything. In fact, he does. He probably knows the least of all in some ways. Um, and so they're all trying to feel their way into what's going on, this crazy new world that's been opened up with, with the rift opening. Uh, and that, the idea of that was it was to help us understand why the custodians are now here and why they have to be there and why it couldn't have been otherwise and how okay. that change happened. Mm. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, they're, they're great um, characters. And I guess there's, there's always been like that mystique about about them because obviously we've seen them in all these the artwork and all the pictures, etc. But um, and the same for the Sisters of Science. But was, and obviously they touched on a bit in the Heresy and we get to know a bit about uh, Constantine. But yeah, it's that adding that extra layer I thought was quite interesting. Did you get to play around with the sandbox a bit in terms of the the history about them and how they act or was it was there a, a dedicated path you sort of had to had to follow on, on their characters? I mean yeah it's I think I think there was quite a lot in the book actually that was that was um created for that story. I think there was a lot of it really required me to think quite hard about um some of the history of the, the faction. Unlike the space wars which have had lots of very detailed law for years and years and years the custodians really didn't have anything so some of this was was coming out in in the, the books that were published at the time some of it was coming up to heresy novels like master of mankind where they had um, quite a prominent role so i was trying to use that the forge world heresy books had a lot of content on both the custodians and the sisters of science and they they had they, as the forge world books tended they had a lot of content on things like their formations and their history but mm-hmm. yeah. writing a character um then you know you've got to really invent quite a lot yourself. So I was trying to think about making them different as individuals. One of the great differences between custodians and space marines is space marines, loyalist space marines anyway, tend to be kind of group animals that they fight in groups and they think in groups and they're very slavish. You know, so that their chapter and their pride means everything to them. Uh, and if you, I don't know, if you see a black templar, the chances are he'll be very similar to all the other black templars that are kind of come <laughs> over the horizon. Whereas a custodian, one of the things that we try to do is the, these are basically individuals. They don't really even fight in in formations, except when tactics make it um, a, you know, a good idea. They're, they're not permanently in these regiments or battalions. They are these individual bodyguards that get used for all the, um, a whole variety of missions. And so they can be a bit more different. And so the idea with Valerian is he's very different to some of the, the other custodians you meet in the book. He's got his own views on things. He's, he's primarily a scholar rather than a warrior 
Um, and so again, it's that whole thing about the Imperium isn't just a war machine, it's actually it's a gigantic instrument of government. And custodians are a little bit closer to diplomats and scholars than, than spray sprays are. Was it a, um, uh, when did you pitch the book or did um, Black Library come to you for, for this, the, 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 this series? Well, they, they came to me because um, because all these things were happening in the, in the background and they wanted yeah. to do the book because um, there hadn't been any novels because there hadn't been any background. But the actual plot of the book and, and decisions, you know, when it was set and the events that was covered, that, that was um, the, the pitch that I sent to them. Oh, that's and cool. The, the usual way it works is like, you, you'll go to them with ideas and sometimes you'll say, yeah, that's great. Like, we, yeah, we think that will work. Or sometimes it doesn't. You go back and have another, have another go. Um, the Empress Legion was... Um, yeah, I think the, the, the decision to sort of really set it across the events of the Great Rift and have it mm. with the return of the Primarch and all the things happening in the book. That 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 was something I thought was quite important to do because the, the weird thing about that whole period in, in the law is that actually most of the books, the sort of the, the background books that were setting all that out, they had a sort of print run and then they weren't available for a long time. Yeah. So you had this strange situation where, like, even a year after all this stuff had happened, you, you couldn't really. Get the background of that so you can but you couldn't for a few years and so the black library novels i felt were a really important source of people trying to understand what was happening so if, if someone had been in the hobby a few years ago and gone away from it and come back uh, and they wanted to get the the depth you know all of the the ins and outs of what had gone on um they might well not have been able to unless they were reading some of the you know, guy haley's novels or, or the yeah. Yeah. which were really kind of telling the, the story in all its richness and so that's why so many of the things that were important to know about um you know, the transition in 40k happened in the embassy. I thought, you know, people might want to read that story, at least from the perspective of people on Terra. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Um, uh, I, the, the thing I feel like I use the word heavy lifting. I think um, one of the, the reason I asked about and did they come to you about it was around the Sisters of Silence, weirdly. I know they're only a segment of the entire story, but obviously seeing Alea through the first book and then even more so in the second book, her having to look at the what happened to our history um mm. i think well, that must have been a really exciting proposition because there was none to talk about there, there was a model range that came out for the heresy and we knew yeah. about the heresy but then there was no place for them in 40k so that's why i was asking is did they want you to make that part of it or did you go i want to bring this all up to speed uh, i mean i think from memory that that was something i was really keen to do i think that, um, cool. that when the pages went in they're very they're very happy with it and i think that as you say in the second book there was even more of that kind of delving into the past of the order um yeah i, I guess like i say unlike uh, the blood angels or the ultramarines there hasn't been a lot of stuff so yeah. you do get a little bit more freedom to to i mean the, the, the sister signs were difficult because there has been scattered across bits of law for a long time there's been these ideas um things like the gene cults on luna and uh, and, <laughs> and the nature of pariah gene all that stuff has been in 40k for a long long time and the Sisters of Science have always sort of been a part of that and the black ships and that kind of stuff. But like, they mm. hadn't, to my knowledge, certainly had a sort of really thorough treatment in fiction. They, they had a lot of stuff in the background sections, I think, and particularly the Forge World book. Um, but getting getting them into a novel where you can have um, a perspective from inside someone's head and actually have their take on the universe um, was was really exciting. Of course, the, the annoying thing is they can't say anything. So <laughs> there was another reason for why the books are so personal. <laughs> well, how am I going to do this? I can't constantly have people, <laughs> yeah, yeah. guessing what she means. I mean, we, we did a lot with the, the thought mark stuff that um, came out. I think in like the Eisenstein or um, or the early Hosey books. But um, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's an awkward <laughs> it's an awkward thing to to have to do with a character that can't say anything. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I really liked her as a character, and I was just trying to think of how you could have creatively have done hand signals and gestures, but yeah, doing it first from their perspective probably made it a bit easier. Yeah, yeah. Because I think I think in the Harris don't they have there's some of the initiates can talk or one of them can talk, so I think they, they got around it that way. But yeah, it is. It is I never really thought about it, but yeah, it's quite a hard character to write in a book. <laughs> I, I honestly don't know. This is showing my ignorance. I don't know why why they can't talk. I know it's a vow, but. I mean, my, my yeah. guess is like a lot of things in the case, someone in the pub in Nottingham 20 years ago just said, you know, let's do this. And no one really thought yeah. about <laughs> I think it's something, yeah, it's something to do with like a vow to the emperor, you know, that I won't speak until I die kind of thing. But yeah. say it's far more likely to be a pub in Nottingham. <laughs> 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 so sticking with custodians. So um, 
I think it might be one of the oldest books in the series in the terms of the timeline. Um, you did the Valdor book. If I oh, yeah. 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 So I think I might be right that in all the heresy books, that might be the one that's set back the furthest. Because that's, uh, it uh, could be, yeah. I mean, I think, um, yeah, it's unification here, isn't it? I mean, I think there've been bits and pieces in some of that. I mean, things like Prospero Burns go quite quite, quite a long way. True, um, true. And then there's been the Alfaris Primarchs book now as well, which is, um, yeah, I think you know it certainly has. I mean, it's always it's like one of those things where there's been lots of hints. Yeah, about what must have happened. But I think it's probably true that Valdor is the only novel-length book or short novel that that's been set entirely in that period. It, it, it's one of those books that I, when I first read it, well, actually, I'm, I'm lying, I didn't read it, I listened to it on audio. <laughs> um, it, it felt almost alien, because I think you've written quite a lot set on terror with your two different series in 40k, with um, um, with your uh, inquisitorial books, your um, the uh, custodians books, but this one felt very different, because it felt like a totally different <laughs> that I'd never seen before. Um, it was a well, terror yeah. before the before the palace was built, it was being built as 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 the story was going on. But how how did you go around doing that and creating that that terror before the terror we know? Like, did did Black Library have a lot of reference points? For it? A bit of free range. No, I mean, that that was really. Um, I mean, there was stuff, but but I think. I mean, first of all, I'm really glad that's your that's what was your take is that the the, the hope with Valdor was it would be a very different appearance of what we know, yeah. and it would show the unification era. It's certainly a perspective on it. Um, and it would feel unfamiliar because otherwise, yeah. you know, it'd be really, I think it'd be really disappointing if every phase of human development felt like 40k. Because yeah. then, yeah, what's what's the difference between the nightmare, of the, the the present, and and the, the era of hope in the past, which was we were always told was there. Um, so the idea really was to to try and show a world that had bits that were familiar that would go on to be familiar in 40k, but was very different both in in the actual specifics, but also like we were talking earlier, the tone, it's a different world. People have different expectations. So one of the characters in Valdor really has very idealistic ideas about what empires should be like. Mm. Um, and she is much closer to, I guess, what we would see as someone who's got an appealing set of ideas. You know, should, there should be rule of law, there should be due that process. Yeah. We should be thinking about progress. We should be thinking about uh, all the things that we think important in the real world. Uh, and she sort of gradually sees that those things are very hard to maintain in already in the era of unification. That's that's mm. you know, still a long way off the how how bad it gets. Um, so the idea was to sort of present something that you could see turning into the Imperium, but it definitely wasn't at that stage. Um, and it's a tricky one because you never know how people will react to it. I mean, I think what I wanted to do was was not have a really simple story where everything was perfect and wonderful and it was all great and that the Emperor's plans were definitely good and um it's just a shame they all went wrong later what i was trying to sort of show in valdor was that even then even in the in the, the right at the beginning there are lots of doubts about whether this is a good idea mm. people have conflicting ideas about which way the imperium should be evolving some are very um cynical about the future and they just think it's a matter of just war and they, and they fit in very well in 40k and there, there are others like i said who have different views but it wasn't meant to be um a bleak picture it's just it's a bit more like the real world i mean those are the discussions we have in real world politics and so i was hoping that that the glimpse that you get is a little bit more like the the, the debates that we recognize in a pluralistic society because the imperium isn't pluralistic but in the unification you have this glimpse of of all the different ideas that are all bubbling away you see which ones triumph and which ones don't yeah yeah absolutely i think that was one of my biggest takeaways was that the emperor has not had an easy ride and i think um going back to the references that exist in the law already if i go and find you know second edition rule book or something from back in the 90s there's so little talked about around the emperor's struggles it's kind of the unification wars happened and then they went on a jolly around the universe for two hundred <laughs> yeah. years yeah 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 that's right I, I mean for anyone who hasn't read the book i mean some of the things about the actual unification wars themselves are told in recollection. We don't actually see very much of that. So I think it's, I mean, I, I think I felt with Valdor, I was really skirting as hard as possible against what we ought to be showing. And, and some people may have preferred yeah. not to be showing. I completely get that and I sympathize with that. But I was certainly very conscious that, you know, we were already doing quite a lot 
to pull the curtain back and I didn't want to pull it back completely so that all the mystery disappeared so some of the, the key events that we know about from the law are sort of talked about in Valdor but you don't see them directly um, and so you know Valdor himself actually at a couple of stages in the book is interviewed by one of the characters and, and so he's just his recollections of how things went and I think that's as far as I'd like to see it go certainly I wouldn't like to see lots of um, omniscient narrator stuff about some of the the earliest days of the Emperor on Terror, because I think it's important that we get a lot of mystery about that time. Oh, um, exactly. yeah. I mean, I don't think there'll be many books like Valdor in the future, unless the, the company has a change of heart. I think, I, I mean, Valdor was a one that was amazing in some ways, they let me do it. I think it, it was, I wasn't necessarily expecting when I pitched yeah, this thing that they, they, they give it the green light. Um, because I think it is quite a, a sort of a, an insight into something that for a long time has almost been deliberately quite obscure. Yeah, it gives you freedom to move. I mean, there's I can't remember who said it, but uh, did we really need the Clone Wars films? You know, like, do you <laughs> yeah. need to see that stuff? Because in my head, just the line, your father fought in the Clone Wars, was super exciting. And I wish I could have that back. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. Um, no, I think that's a really valid thing. And, 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 and you know, I genuinely think, you know, there, there are people who would dislike a bit like Valdor, dislike um, similar books. And I think that's a, that's a, that's something I sympathise with because you're quite right. I mean, it, it was a lot more, a lot cooler until we discovered what the Clone Wars actually were. <laughs> but yeah, um, yeah it, but there are also people who are just hungry for this stuff, and I think that, um, that there's a balance to be struck. And, and you know, I, I'm still, I'm you know, people are, uh, a book like Valor is really cool to talk about because I mean, some people really loved it and and really sort of were so pleased that something had come out that that gave an insight into that part of history. Yeah, I um, think it, and it, so it's, it's it's nice again to have that thing where there'll be different strokes and and some people yeah uh, sure. will, will want to have that kind of story told. What's what's the hardest thing writing about Baldor then in, in terms of actually as a character because he's well the emperor's right hand for before he had any sons. What was the most complicated thing about actually putting pen to paper as a character? Well, the obvious the obvious problem with all custodians is that they don't have flaws in a useful way um so yeah. even a space marine can cause chaos um and they can they can have all sorts of flaws like they can be too angry or too headstrong or too reckless or, or they can you know they can be too reliant on technology or something <laughs> the space things have lots of flaws and, and flaws are what makes characters interesting so yeah you know, they either overcome those flaws or they're defeated by them uh, but they've got something to fight against internally um Whereas custodians in one level just don't have any of that because they are completely incorruptible and they're very physically uh, imposing. There's very little that can survive going up against custodians. So you're not going to routinely have them losing in combat. Um, and so trying to create that sense of what's the problem with custodians, I think is the biggest challenge. And um, in both Valdor and, and the 40K books, I've ended up sort of really coming down. The problem with custodians is that they're too perfect and that that almost creates a kind of, they almost know too much, that they, they, they almost get paralysed by how good they are. Yeah. Um, and they lose that sense. So the space is incredibly dynamic. They don't really think very hard before they go and kill someone. They'll just, they are, they're weapons. They'll just be constantly on the, on the go. And and they're incredibly decisive that they will, you know, they're, they're, they're the super soldiers of the Imperium and they're bred that way. And my take on custodians has always been that Nothing in the Warhammer universe is given away for free. That if you've got some gifts in one direction, you're probably going to lose in another direction. For me, custodians' weaknesses, they don't have that dynamism and they don't have that individuality, that sort of sense of self that even a space marine does and certainly an ordinary human does. Mm. So Valdor's kind of shtick in the book is that on the one hand, he's incredibly impressive. But on the other hand, he's really rubbish. Like He doesn't understand basic human emotions, even to the extent that a space marine does. Yeah. Um, he is he he's he's and he's fully aware of this he's, he's aware that at some point in his early life he was turned into something very strange and to the yeah. extent he's got he and he, he's all almost aware that he can't even reflect on that properly he doesn't know what it would be like to be in the full in possession of a full range of emotions so he's sort of um and hopefully the interest with that is he is quite a tragic figure that he's on the one hand godlike in his power there's very little i mean a primarch is probably the only thing in the imperium that is more compelling on the battlefield than, than the Valdor. Mm. He, he's even like, he's certainly got none of the charisma of a Primarch. So no. Someone like Lee Russ, who is really appealing, you know, he's, he's just like the store entering a room, he's kind of 
you know, he, he's just going to light up the party, <laughs> whatever he's doing. Yeah, Baldor yeah. is he's going to be the guy in the corner, kind of sipping his pina colada, kind of wondering <laughs> if he can how to, you know, go and <laughs> he can't remember the punchline to any jokes because yeah. he's just he, he's really kind of limited in lots of ways. So that that was the angle I took. But he's this strange combination of incredibly impressive, but also much less than human. Yeah, that's really interesting. That's a nice take on it because the only other take I could see. Uh, it going down is the kind of superman issue you know superman how do you how do you hurt the world's most indestructible man well you hurt everyone around him um and you hurt him emotionally but what if you don't have emotions that's a whole nother level <laughs> yeah. yeah no that's right i mean that's, that's a good analogy because it, it's, it's thinking about again that, that's making superman more interesting isn't it giving him challenges that aren't just about physical strength yeah um, and there's a bit in in the book where where Valdor kills a, a, a an impressive uh, antagonist, an impressive adversary. But even when he's dying, this adversary is, you know, he's, he's sort of laughing at him and saying, you know, okay, it doesn't matter that you've beaten me because you've got a terrible, terrible life. I've had a fantastic life. I've lived yeah. into the full. I've had, I've experienced everything a human ought to experience. And you know, you, you know, you, you've got none of that. And so again, it's that sense of even in the earliest days of the Imperium, all the tools that the Emperor was kind of assembling had this sort of tragic limitation built into them and, and that carries all the way through into 40k custodians have never really got over that i think they're they're still manufactured in the way that they were in 30k and they're still the best of them are really quite aware of that and it's, it's their sort of internal tragedy mm. no it is very compelling i might have to give it a lesson again it's very good <laughs> <laughs> thank um, you obviously you're, um, you're well known for the for the white scars books and heresy and obviously taking on the first like real story about them so was there any i guess the first question is um obviously they have quite a, you know we all know that they're based on mongolian asian traditions did you actually have to like do any research into that area to sort of give sort of base some of the characters on them and because obviously there's as we read the book we learn a lot about their culture and you know how they initiate new new ranks and and what they do etc so was there any any research you wanted to do in that area well, there was, um, and it's a strange sort of mix, really, because 40K has always had this thing where Space Wars are Vikings and Ultramarines are Spartans, I guess, or um, or Romans. And, and and so they lots of them have got these archetypes, but they've always be, be played quite fast and loose with them. They've never really gone to them. And I think that's the way it should be. I, think, I don't think 40K, it's not historical um, fiction. It, it's sort of you take these kind of core ideas and you just throw them into an insane far future universe and you take the bits that you like and you don't. Use the bits that you don't like and so there was there was some i did do some research on on uh the sort of uh genghis khan's uh, empire and, and, the, and some of the tactics used by the mongols and some of the tactics used in other sort of uh, uh asian cultures at the time and so to kind of create a flavor um but it was never intended to be anything very involved it was just really taking some cool things and i think that's the that's the warhammer way really i don't think um uh, it, it works if you try and make it more serious than that I mean, it's an interesting question for me, actually, because one of the things that I think certainly I've become a lot more conscious of, and I think maybe we all have, uh, since A Book Like Scars was written, was actually things like cultural appropriation and being sensitive yeah, yeah. to Western mm. um, yeah. depictions. I think um, if I've got any regrets about Scars, I mean, I, 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 it was always the intention to, to present that culture as a positive light and to say mm -hmm. this is a really interesting non-European archetype of warrior. And I think it was always the intention to try and make it interesting and, and rich. I think if I was writing it today, um, I'd be more more aware of not just kind of taking things without fully understanding them and throwing them in. Because obviously, I, I, my, my background is uh, I'm in the UK, so yeah, that that sort of sensitivity has become something that we're all rightly much more concerned about. So yeah. that that's probably my main sort of um, when I look back, I think my God, you know, we. we we did sort of play but it, the intention was always i think in a good place we were trying to do something to broaden the appeal of, of, of 40k and sort of show that it wasn't just about say knightly archetypes or um or sort of uh, mediterranean warriors it, it, actually 40k could suck in a whole load of influences from all over the place yeah no that's yeah that's definitely great. and i think you, as you said rightly that you there's hints to that background etc but it's not they're not just it's not just solely based on that there's a, there's a lot of like a, a mixing pool of, of different things going on there but then smashed up into like being 
30k superhuman warriors it's yeah i think i think it's it's a good mix and as you say i think in all the legions that's very good that there's something properly for everyone there. Like if you don't like you know don't like spiking space vikings and you can go to you know, blood angel vampires or horror yeah athletic. so yeah, yeah i think it's it's good that there's and, and i think the scars are very good for that to have another uh, another sort of architect that are not just knightly i think that's i think that's we picked i picked up on that is yeah, it's good there they're not just soldiers on foot like you know marching yeah. they have a they have a nice uh, way of fighting which is very different I, with some of the things like there, there was there's a bit in scars where they they perform a fleet maneuver that they call mm, which is, yeah. and, and that is based on a, a cavalry maneuver that i was reading about and obviously it's not just, you know, so, no, really cross, but it's just the the concepts of the kind of um the, the, the retreat and then and then counter-attack and, and encirclement all these things which you know lots of armies use it's not unique to them but it's giving that flavor of you know, these are like very fast moving step warriors but they're just doing it in space and yeah. and that's their unique capability and when, i remember when i was when the, before starting the book i sent in quite, what ended up being quite a long briefing though on what i felt um the legion's characteristics should be and it it always struck me as really important that the temptation when you're coming up with something that you're going to write about is to make them the best so these are the fastest <laughs> and the strongest yeah. and the and it was just as important when thinking about the scars to think about what they weren't very good at, because otherwise it just gets boring. If, you, if you're writing a book and you can see an author just wants to make them fantastic. Or, um, so we, we thought about ways in which they fell down. So certainly in the early White Scars books, there were lots of emphasis on the fact that logistically they were quite bad. So they, they would be very good on they're very good on attacking somewhere but they wouldn't be very whole unlike the ultramarines who would be very good at then fortifying and holding on to it and training the people the white scars would just kind of forget about it and move on and that was a genuine weakness um and so that's one of the most interesting parts of creating um, factions and, and fleshing out factions is thinking about the ways that they fail and and so in taking the long view of the scars it was always in my mind that they end up being one of the three legions that is stuck on terror in the siege, which is their absolute worst kind of fight. Yeah. Whatever yeah. else they're good at, they're not good at. You much prefer to have a loyalist death guard or the iron warriors on those ramparts with you because yeah. they'll just soak up the pain and they'll be incredibly good at withstanding lots of incoming fire. The white scars, all they want to do is just run around and fight and, and attack things. They don't want to be defended for months and months and months. And I thought that was a really interesting idea. I and mean, I don't know, you know who decided, but missed the time that the white scars are one of the loyalist legions that were there but it's a really nice thing that they were the ones one of the ones there because they're so different to the imperial fist the blood angels and you'd think you wouldn't necessarily think they'd be the best ones to be there um it's a sort of it's a quirk of history that they end up um, manning the imperial palace defenses so right from the very start in the brotherhood of the storm there's a bit where one of the characters reflects on this and he says i wondered what i would how i would fight if I wasn't able to be as free as I am now if I was constantly retreating, constantly losing. And I, I hope I, I, I'd like to think that I'd, I'd fight well, but I don't know because I've never done that. And that was written in the knowledge that at some point, whether it was me or someone else, someone would be writing the White Scars doing exactly that on terror. So yeah. right from the start of their stories, there's always been looking forward to but that's how it would go for them. It, yeah. Something I've noticed about them quite significantly, and I think it's it's always been a trait of the White Scars, is they're very individual, like they're all very much their own person, especially the Khan, right? And mm. what, what was it like writing um, for a Primarch that didn't know necessarily his allegiance? You know, the big it was part... great. I mean, it, it was really lucky that I was able to do that. And, and the, the, that actually came about because when i was pitching scars a long time ago there'd been a lot of i mean the scars must have been about halfway through the series i guess um and there'd been a lot of really good books about um traitor primarchs and their struggles with loyalty so you know magnus and Lorgar um and others had wrestled with what to do when you're confronted with the possibility of turning sides um, but there hadn't been, you know, I certainly felt at the time, there hadn't been much from the loyalist side. There were lots of the loyalist primaries like Gulliman and Russ were never going to turn. Um, so we hadn't had any sort of crises of faith on that side, I, I felt. And I thought, wouldn't it be interesting if we had a loyalist primark who we know stays loyal, but they really maybe wobbled uh, and mm. and they had reasons for wobbling. And it wasn't like they were being insane or they weren't being kind of malevolent. They just had genuine, because, you know, 
the whole thing with the white scars is that they genuinely liked the horus the, the horus they knew before he was corrupted yeah. and yeah. so when in the confusion of the early days of the heresy when things start to fall apart that it's not obvious to them that the emperor's the good guy yeah they, they think maybe horus is the good guy. we just don't know and so while in that period of indecision they genuinely are at risk or certainly the, the opportunity is there to to go to the the other side and i thought that would be amazingly interesting to read about if we because it's that counterfactual history if you do it right then you could have this what if thing with the white scar maybe they yeah. were one of those that, that almost didn't so having the khan at the center of that making that part of his um character so it was very important to establish that the khan was never very close to the emperor that he was always running off to the far yeah. edge of the galaxy to make it plausible that maybe he would not yeah and, and also it was set up that, that he and horus were very close and because they in some ways were quite similar characters um, and so hopefully that sort of set the, the scene so that we think, actually, I could see why the car might not be so keen on getting back to Terra, because not only does he not particularly like his father, he's got a lot of time for his brother. And, you know, he but what, what eventually saves them, um, spoilers, I guess, uh, is that they have a they're actually quite sensible. Um, and, yeah. uh, they they have a quite a quite a sophisticated view of what the warp is. And I think once they start to see that the warp is involved, um, then that that changes their view, but the, you know, there's this fascinating period when it could go either way, which is was, was great to write about. Yeah, I think um, the Khan is, you know, he's got his vows and he's he's loyal as well. I think that above all else for him is, mm. in my mind anyway, was he was never going to spit on an oath. He just could didn't have it in him. Um, I think that that's exactly right. I think there's there's a lot. Again, this is this is. Um, I mean, it's common in lots of warrior culture. The space wars are exactly the same. That once you made your eight, that's it. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And even if you thought that you, you by by fulfilling this oath, you would end the universe, you'd be bound to do it because it's that honor culture. Um, and that's definitely another part of his character. And, and you, you could see that as a weakness. You could see that you know there might be people like Gulliman again who'd be much more practical about these things and say, well, look, I I swore that oath when I didn't know what the situation was, and now I'm here. The situation different, so I'm going to do the sensible thing. The Khan isn't like that. An oath, an oath. Yeah. Yeah. He, yeah. He, he's made. He wants you to make a decision to defend someone. You're going to. So there, there, there are all sorts of interesting contradictions in their character. On one hand, they are quite level-headed. But on the other hand, they've got this absolute commitment to to warrior virtues, and so they're they're an interesting bunch to write about. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think one of my favourite aspects of the book is actually the when in the beginning when we get seen. Um, initiate that has to come over from a different legion that's something that hadn't come across in the books before so I don't know was that a decision you made early on to show like and also it creates ten, ten, creates tension as the book goes on about the, you know the cultural impacts of different legions and having to adopt a new legion but also that aspect of um it's not necessarily who you're born to be but you know you can grow into and be accepted in that so was that an aspect you wanted to sort of challenge in, in the legion yeah very much so I mean I think um in, in 40k, the chapters all essentially completely autonomous cultures that they recruit from the planets, um, and uh, there's a very strong link between the culture, the planets that they they recruit from, and what and what the space marines end up turning into. And there's a very long entanglement with that and the, the nature of what the gene seed gives you. But I felt it wouldn't it be interesting to show in, in the heresy. Maybe it's not quite like that. That you know, the, the armies are much bigger. Um, this is much more. The, the, there isn't the sort of desperation that you get in 40k. The resources are much greater. Mm. Uh, and so maybe there are instances of where people are being shuffled around in the early in the recruitment stage before they've had any kind of gene therapy or any extensive training and they think they're going to one legion because they're from one of many hundreds of planets where they're taking mm. recruits from, and they end up in another but they might know enough to think actually i, I wanted that one you know there, there are prestigious legions no le less prestigious legions. so you know, I just thought it would be an interesting contrast to have something because the, the the two characters that we meet in, in Scars, one's called Shiban and one's called Torben. And um, Shiban is like the ultra white guy. He he's from Chigoris. Mm. He, he cannot imagine anything better than being a white guy. He just loves his life. Um, and the the Torben character thought he was destined for uh, a different legion for, for them, the the wolves. And uh, he struggles both with the knowledge that the white scars aren't the most prestigious legion that they don't have the cachet of lots of the others and also that you know he doesn't have any link he's not from the, the white scars homeworld. um he's from terra so he he's sort of a, an outsider in a legion of outsiders and um, when there's a schism 
within that legion over loyalty. You, you can see the way it falls neatly on either side. So mm. initially, I mean, he was put in there. Uh, Torgan was was put in there just as just as sort of a foil to Shivan. I thought it wouldn't be interesting to have that contrast between the two. But as the stories went on, and there were more short stories, and then there were there were novels, that their relationship actually got quite interesting. And, and mm. in some ways, Torgan ended up more sympathetic. Certainly, I mean, the path of heaven. And despite yeah. the fact that he'd made a lot of bad calls, Shivan is the one that ends up getting much more bitter. He he stops loving his life. You know, he he starts to become um, almost a sort of um, he, he, you almost think that he, he he's gone down the wrong path. He's become very consumed by bitterness about what happened. Um, and then as the stories go on, we'll see where that goes. And certainly Shivan plays a large part in Warhawk, and we see the sort of the, the conclusion to his journey. Really. Yeah, yeah. I think with the Torgan as well, uh, you know, such a redemptive arc, which is um, rare to see in 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 any sort of 40k, 30k setting. Um, you know, you sort of make your bed and that's it. But get some kind of minor stand, which I thought was really good. Well, I guess it goes back to what we were saying earlier on. And again, uh, I, you know, I, um, this is a bit spoilery, so I, I, if anyone hasn't read The Path of Heaven, uh, maybe don't listen, but Torgan kind of achieves uh, what I think is the best outcome for anybody of Warhammer is, is you get, you're true to your principles and you get the kind of death yeah. that you deserve. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I think that's that's the best that people get because there isn't a happy ending. I mean, I, I read a fascinating book about, actually, it was Vikings, uh, so it wasn't related to the White Scars in particular, but they about what a viking warrior thought about what was good in life and how it differs from modern ideas so our, our aspiration to most of us is to you know to be reasonably happy and to you know be with friends and to have a you know i don't know have a career that you enjoy those kind of things whereas for a viking living in a much more dangerous age the point was being made that what they wanted was to to die well that they yeah. wanted prestige yeah. and they wanted you know to be known as the guy who was standing you know the last man standing during the, the battle or whatever and and really the idea of just having a happy and content life was not only something they didn't think was prestigious they thought it was contemptible you know why would you want to do that and, and so i feel that really that sort of ethos is is, is present in, in warhammer a lot that someone like Torgan who goes out with a bang um, shouldn't feel sorry for that because that's in some ways the very best that a space marine hopes for in life that they want to, to have that prestigious death they want to be true to their calling they want to be true to their nature and their their roads and so it's nice i mean I, in lots of books um from lots of different authors for bl like that's the kind of stuff i enjoy the most where you see a character within this nightmare horrific setting that the way that they succeed and overcome is not by killing everyone else but by going out with a bang and, and achieving their full potential mm, mm, on their terms yeah 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 there's obviously another great scene is there's when all the primarchs well a few of the primarchs get together and they're and they're talking about you know um about effectively who would win in a fight almost and obviously <laughs> then we get to see khan versus mortarian in that in that scene so i don't know how was that quite a fun scene to write, effectively having, especially that Primarchs <laughs> talking to each other, which it, doesn't it, happen Yeah, it was quite fun. I, I don't know if I'd do it now, actually. I think, <laughs> I think it, it, it was partly, it was always meant to be a little bit cheeky because yeah. a, lot of the, a lot of the fan discussion um, it was then, and I think probably is now, about you know, who would beat who. Yeah, and, <laughs> and, and certainly when we didn't know much about the Primarchs, there was this, this sort of thing about you know, who, who's the best Primarch. And I just thought it might be quite fun to have that kind of mirrored in here, but you'll have a, a similar conversation but, but between Primarchs, like, you know, I'd be you, know, I'd be you. No, I'd be you. Um, so it's a little bit tongue in cheek, and maybe a little bit. Um, uh, I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure I'm doing that. But hopefully people sort of, sort of took it in the spirit. It, it wasn't intended to be disrespectful or, or, or flippant. It was just uh, one of the things about Primarchs is that they are brothers. And uh, mm. they have this, I wanted to have a scene where they have this kind of, conversation that real brothers have where they're kind of kneeling each other and they kind of yeah. before it all goes to hell there's they're, you know, they're, they're rivals and they're but they're also kind of friends and and there's actually a line in warhawk which um, is out soon where um one of them one of the characters reflects on that it's actually the only people who know the primarchs or the other primarchs they're, they're, they're even aliens to their own legions because they weren't born on the world that they ended up scattered to um and so they they have this all um this brotherhood that's actually quite lonely and even when they're at each other's throats 
only a Primark understands another Primark. And so I thought it would be quite nice to have a, a gathering of them where they're, they're chatting to one another and uh, seeing how they, they interact. And I think, obviously, yeah, after that, the opportunities to do that diminish because they're fighting whenever they see each other. Um, but th- yeah, so that was the idea with that, Steve. It was a sort of little, a little bit of lightness in the dark. Yeah, yeah it's, no, it's, it's great. It's definitely, as you say, a, a lighthearted end. I, I think it's Sanguinus who's a bit like sort of prodding prodding the bull a bit about you know, yeah. edging the, yeah so definitely a very brotherly which as you say you don't get to see a lot in it because you know, they very quickly they're at each other's throats but um yeah it was, it was a great scene i really enjoyed that oh great. i enjoyed it <laughs> cool well i think i think we might call it a night there chris um unless you have any other questions jamie no i'm good thanks no that's been great thank you for your time yeah, thank you, Chris. Have you got anything you'd like to end on or, or plug or, or, or where can people find you online? Oh, um, well, uh, uh, I guess, uh, well, I'm on Twitter. Uh, so if you, I, I don't know how easy I'm going to find. I mean, it's, uh, I think it's Rate C is my handle on Twitter. So I tend to occasionally tweet very boringly about books coming out or, or, or things <laughs> like that. Um, and I got a blog somewhere, um, which, which uh, the, the only thing that I'm quite useful about that is that Black Library website, Black Library are a fantastic company to work with. The website can be a bit tricky to find, particularly old books. Mm. One thing I did a while ago was actually put all the books that I've written in order on, on, the, okay. on the blog. So that, that might be quite a useful result. But no, um, it's been a real pleasure to chat to you. Thanks for all the really interesting questions. It's been uh, really uh, sort of thought-provoking stuff. And, uh, and thanks for having me on. Yeah, no, thank you for making the time. It's, it was an absolute pleasure. Cheers. Thank you.